Hey everyone, it's Jamie. Welcome to this bonus episode of Murderish. Recently, I connected with Mike Morford, or better known as Morph, from the Criminology Podcast. Morph and his friend Mike Ferguson are the hosts of the Criminology Podcast, and if you haven't already, you've got to subscribe. In the first season of Criminology, they did a deep dive on the Zodiac Killer case. In the second season of Criminology, they did a deep dive on the Golden State Killer case. And as you all know by now, the Golden State Killer was recently arrested mid-season. So needless to say, the Criminology podcast has absolutely blown up and for good reason. Morph and Mike do a great job on Criminology. So if you haven't already, definitely subscribe. In this bonus episode, Morph and I got together and I told him about the time I went through an armed takeover robbery at a bank I used to work for. At the end of the episode, we did a Q&A with Morph and of course we talked about Golden State Killer. At the end of this episode, there's some bonus content where Morph and I just talk shop about podcasting, so stick around. Also, I want to apologize for the audio quality in this episode. It isn't great. I was totally bummed when I listened to the audio back. That said, I found myself getting used to it a couple of minutes into the episode. It's tough sometimes when you're recording with somebody in a different location. Regardless, I hope you still enjoy the collaboration with Morph. It was a lot of fun. Okay, let's get into the show. Hey, Mike, I think it's working. Oh, cool. <laughs> How's it going? Good. Good. Thanks for being patient with me. I hate technology uh, no sometimes. Yeah, I don't handle any of that stuff for the podcast. So, you know, <laughs> when it comes to the tech stuff, it's, you know, like I refer to that to Mike and uh, I let him figure all that stuff out. You are so lucky. I wish I had a mic. <laughs> yeah, everybody needs a, a mic. Everybody needs a partner. <laughs> So, um, no, I, I couldn't wait to get on the phone with you. I was so glad that, you know, you and I connected recently and it was so fun meeting you at CrimeCon. That was a blast. Was that your first time going or did you go last year? I went last year too. You know, last year I had gone as part of the Golden State Killer panel. You know, we were there raising awareness and up on stage giving a, a discussion about the case. And, you know, I knew at the time I was actually working on the podcast. So I was talking a little bit to people when I could. But uh, it was hard to really get out there because, you know, we were swamped for three days while we were there. I literally went out and saw some people that I knew out in Podcast Row and just said hi, talked to them for a few minutes, and, and then that was it. I didn't get much time out there. So this time being actually on Podcast Row was pretty cool because you got to spend a little bit more time out there and talk with people. CrimeCon was definitely a whirlwind, and I could see that you were, I mean, obviously this year CrimeCon was so different, I would imagine, for you, just based, you know, on the recent events of Golden State Killer and uh, you being mid-season when everything went down. So I definitely want to talk to you about that, and I want to do, you know, a quick Q&A after we're done chatting here, because I know I've got some listener questions for you, and some of it's, you know, obviously surrounding the GSK ordeal. Yeah, cool. Okay, right on. So, um, but yeah, so you and I were going to talk about, I was just going to tell you about an experience I had where I was involved, not involved as a perpetrator, but as a victim or whatever you want to call it, uh, an armed takeover robbery at a bank that I worked for. I'll just get started and tell you that story and feel free to interject if, you know, if you have any questions or comments or whatever, this is going to be super casual. So Cool. Yeah, absolutely. Right on. And then I sent you those articles. I don't know if you had time. They were both kind of short articles. There's really not much to it. But did you have a chance to read anything on it? Yeah, I did read them. And I was sort of looking through and seeing if there's any kind of outcome, any kind of arrest. I didn't see any 
So it looks like they sort of maybe got away with it. Yeah. So that's something that I don't know. I know that there were some bank robbery suspects arrested nearby a few years later. And it may have been them, but to be honest, I never really like hunted down like the information. And so I, I really don't know if they ever got caught. Yeah, it was back in May 2011. So I've been a banker basically my whole adult life up until recently. I quit to um, work uh, with my husband in the family business. It was back in May 2011 and I was living and working at, or I was working at Community Bank in Redlands, which is like a small town in Southern California. It's where I grew up, where I went to high school. And uh, I was working as a commercial loan officer and it was Community Bank, Redlands. It was on Citrus Avenue and it was about 1030 in the morning. Uh, I was sitting at my desk. So basically like the branch looks very much like any bank branch you walk into. There's two entrances in, you know, one on one side of the building and one on the other. And there's a lobby. And then, you know, on part of the lobby across from the teller line, There's a set of like eight desks and that's where like the loan officers sit and the new accounts people. So there's like four rows of desks up front and then behind those four desks uh, are another row of four desks. So I was sitting in one of the desks in the back row. So across from us um, was the teller line. So if I'm sitting at my desk working, I'm directly facing the teller line. And there was probably six teller windows and there was probably three tellers working that day. So it was 1030 in the morning. So the bank had been open for not too long because if I re- am remembering correctly, I think that bank opened at 10 in the morning. So we had just opened and my desk was really close to one of the entrances uh, for people to walk in and it's two glass doors. So you can fully see, you know, people walking in and they can see you. So I was sitting at my desk and it, it was like slow motion. I looked over, I see these two guys, they're wearing hooded sweatshirts and they're about to walk into the lobby. And I knew right away we're getting robbed. Like it was just a flash. There was no doubt in my mind because right when I looked over and saw them walking into the bank, they were walking very quickly, like they had a purpose or something. And I looked over and right as I looked over and spotted them, one of the guys, actually both the guys bent their heads down a little bit, kind of looked at the ground and they tipped their hoodies over their heads. Oh, and one of them was carrying a white bag. And I'm like, oh my God, it's like the classic, you know, bank robber. He's carrying a bag. They're wearing hooded sweatshirts. And right before they walk in, they tip their hoodies over their head. And I want to say that one of them was wearing a full-blown like army colored ski mask. So you couldn't see his face. But the other guy who was carrying the bag, he tipped his dark blue hoodie over his head. But I think you could see his face because there's pictures of him online leaving the bank. And also there's a picture of him jumping the teller line. So I'm pretty sure you can see his face. I don't think he was wearing a a ski mask. But anyway, they walked in. And I mean, I was terrified. I knew what was about to happen. I couldn't believe it. It took me just like a couple seconds to process like, oh, my God, this is really happening. What do I do? Do I scream and say, hey, we're about to get robbed? But like, there was no time to even say that because they walked in right as I noticed them, they walked in. It was almost like slow motion when that happened. So they walk in the door. The guy in the dark blue hoodie immediately goes to the teller line, jumps up on top of it and jumps over behind where all the tellers are standing. And he's demanding money. And at the same time, he jumped over the teller line. The other guy who was wearing lighter color clothing and also had a ski mask on he pointed a gun at all of us sitting in the desks. So he took his gun out and his arm was straight out in front of him. He pointed the gun. I don't remember exactly what he said, but he basically said, uh, stay quiet, don't move, I'll kill you. 
And we were just like, everybody was in shock. There were customers in the lobby. So, you know, I remember some customers standing off to my left and one lady started kind of like trembling. You could hear her like visibly making noise. Like she was so terrified. So the one guy jumped over the teller line while the one, the other guy is just holding us at bay with his gun. The guy who jumped the teller line is over there and he's obviously trying to get money. I never, never paid attention to him because all I could look at was the guy that was pointing a gun at us. I didn't know, you know, what he was going to do. And I remember when they walked in, I immediately crouched down below my desk and I took my two fingers and I squeezed the silent alarm because every desk and also every teller line, basically everybody who worked there had access to a silent alarm and you just had to take your two fingers and squeeze on it. And nobody knows that you're activating it, but it calls the police right away. We found out later that nine of us in the branch that day hit the silent alarm while the robbers were there. So I crouched down behind my desk or below my desk and I I hit the silent alarm, but something about me knowing that a guy had a gun on us, I didn't want to stay under my desk the whole time. I don't know why my instinct was to get up just enough to where my eyes were above my desk so I could see where the gun was pointed. And I don't even know if that was a good move, a bad move, but it's just what I did instinctively. So I could see the guy pointing the gun on us the whole time. I could see what was going on. But I also knew in my mind, like, I didn't want to move around a lot. I didn't want to make any noise. I didn't want to call attention. I just wanted them to get their money and go. But um, while the guy had the gun pointed on us, one thing that made me so mad later on, and actually the employee got sort of reprimanded for it, not reprimanded, but just kind of they talked to her and told her that she kind of put people's lives in danger when she did this. But there was a lady who sat in the desk in front of me. And after the guy jumped the teller line and his buddy has his gun pointed on us, she's standing right next to the guy with the gun. And he clearly said, do not move. Don't make any noise. I'll kill you. She starts panicking and ripping off all of her expensive jewelry and throwing it into the trash can under her desk. And I'm talking, she had like two sets of earrings on. She had two bracelets. She had a watch. She had a necklace. She was concerned about her jewelry. (laughs) Jeez. Can you imagine? (laughs) Yeah, that's the last thing you should be worrying about when you're, when you've got a gun in your face. I swear. And she was the closest to the gunman. So, I mean, this made me so nervous because it takes a while to take off all that jewelry. So she's fidgeting around. And I want to say that he said something to her to make her stop, but I can't remember what that was, but she did eventually stop because he was like, you know, hey, he motioned over and said something for her to stop moving around because it was making him nervous. At one point, he took the gun and I think that he pointed over toward a customer and said something because that customer was making noise and kind of threatened the customer and then pointed the gun back at us, the people who were sitting in the desks. So they were probably there for, I want to say like two minutes tops. It was like 120 seconds. I mean, but it felt like two hours. And so when they were done getting the money, the one guy jumps back over the teller line and both of them storm out of there with their white bag in hand and they leave. So immediately everybody starts looking around. We're like, you know, kind of like, hey, are we safe? Are we safe? So somebody, I can't remember who it was, probably the bank manager jumps up immediately, locks both of the doors. Customers are still inside. And by that point, the police had come. The police got the silent alarm right as the the bank robbers were, were storming in. So they showed up right as the guys were leaving. 
So the police come in, you know, they're like, is everybody okay? And of course, they immediately Mm -hmm. advise all of us, don't talk to each other. We want to get separate accounts of what happened. And um, so they did that. They questioned the, you know, employees. They questioned all the customers and things like that. But it turns out that, number one, the guy who jumped the counter actually dropped it. He had an earpiece. You know how a lot of people used to use like an earpiece for Bluetooth? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like a phone or whatever earpiece. So that had dropped when he jumped uh, the counter. So that landed on the floor. So the police recovered that as evidence. But the funnier thing is that these guys left. And I'm not sure if you're familiar. Probably You probably are. But there's such thing as die packs. You know, that banks put in money in case a robbery happens. Right. Okay. So the teller that he hit up that day did happen to give him, as she's trained to do, all of her money in her top drawer. And when you give them the money in her top drawer, there's certain bundles of money that have the die packs in it. So she did give him the die pack money and the bag exploded. The die pack exploded before they got in their getaway car. So they dropped it and they got in their car and they didn't leave with any money. We recovered all the money. And, um, so it was, I think they counted it. It was like in the five figures, low five figures. I can't remember exactly what it was, but, um, but yeah, they left and I'm sure, I think that stuff makes your skin itch. So they probably had red dye all over them and they were itching like crazy, but they didn't get away with any money. I know that they also robbed at least two other banks in two other counties, one in LA County, one in San Bernardino County, which was where I was working and then another County. So not only was the FBI involved because it's a federally regulated bank, but you had like two different police departments involved as well. And um, it definitely was, it was something that like, you don't want to admit that you have maybe some sort of like PTSD, but we definitely did afterward. And every time I sat at that desk, I mean, I went to work the next day on a Friday and every time I sat at that desk, I mean, it's kind of like, I don't know if you've been through an earthquake, but it's kind of like if you've been through an earthquake, you know that aftershocks are coming. And so you're anticipating it. So you're nervous because you're like, oh, when's that aftershock going to come? When's the aftershock going to come? And it's the same thing. Like when you get robbed, you know, at gunpoint, you're just feeling like you're just staring at that door all day. Like, God, is somebody going to storm in and do this again? You know, I kind of couldn't stop shaking for a few days. And but luckily nobody got hurt. It was absolutely terrifying. And there's some pictures online, which I'm, you know, I can post in the Facebook group. I'm sure you saw them in the articles, but uh, it's kind of creepy to look back at those pictures. It kind of takes you back to that time when it happened. And um, there were a few employees who left on like a stress leave because they were just terrified. I know that the teller who was involved was really, really shaken because I mean, I don't know if he made physical contact with her, but he jumped her teller line and he was like right in her face, you know, and she's nervously trying to give him all this money. And so that's basically what happen. Like I said, I don't know if they ever got caught. I hope they did, but they called them the Greenhorn Bandits because I guess in some of their robberies, they were pretty clumsy and seemed to not know what they were doing. So I don't know. The the, the police told us, or was it the FBI or the police basically said that like when, you know, bank robbers are less experienced, they're more likely to use violence. And I don't know what that tie is, but anyway, you know, he held a gun on us, but nobody got physically hurt from the situation. So that's the good thing. Yeah, and I guess the banks are insured and probably tell you ahead of time, cooperate and just give them whatever they want and make sure everybody goes home alive. Yeah, you're exactly right. That's the advice that is always given is that, you know, don't try to be a hero. Give them exactly what they want. You know, like you said, we'll get our money back. You know, it's not about the money and things like that. But yeah, oh my God, the worst part of it was when my colleague started taking her jewelry off that I I literally thought he was going to shoot her because she just wouldn't oh. stop. It was so scary. And and then you probably are trained and, and 
go through the motions of what would happen in that scenario, but it's probably different when you have, you know, a gun pointing in your face, you know, everything goes out the window at that point. Oh, big time. And it's so crazy because I've been through a, you know, a scary experience before something different than this, but this also is the same thing. Like you get to see these guys for two minutes straight. You know, I saw them walking in, but it's hard to recount so many details because you're just so like you're in shock, you know? So you would think that you'd be able to describe these guys to a T and remember all these details fresh, you know, right off after it happens. But when the police question you, you find yourself going, you know what? I don't know if he had a mustache or I don't know now what color his, you know, pants were, or, you know, it's just kind of, it's strange that way, but your mind does a lot of weird things when you're going through something really traumatic like that. And I guess the part about it that I'll never, never, never forget is the feeling that I got, like the cold rush of instant panic of, oh my God, I'm about to be harmed, but there's nothing I can do about it to then you're just in survival mode. You know, he's got the gun on you, you know, maybe he won't hurt you, but you just need to stay still and keep yourself alive and keep everybody safe. But yeah, it's a crazy feeling, but I don't know what goes through people's minds or what their motives were. I don't know if, you know, these guys are drug addicts or what, or why they needed the money so bad, but it's pretty brazen. I mean, they could have been killed, right? Because what if there was like an off-duty police officer in the bank? Oh yeah, and you see all these different movies of guys that are, you know, go crazy or something goes wrong while in the middle of it. And the next thing you know, they're shooting and everything else. So, yes. you know, it could easily turn deadly. Oh, heck yeah. Like the huge shootout at Bank of America in Hollywood or North Hollywood. Do you remember that one? Yeah. That oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was, uh, you know, the, the full machine guns and everything. I think the movie Heat was actually uh, based on that, the shootout in Heat. Or, or they actually had watched the movie Heat and sort of came up with that plan. I'm um, sure you're right. And, yeah. Yeah, I, I think I remember reading that. And, um, you know, it was a pretty big shootout. And they were wearing a... Uh, body armor and everything else. It was hard to take them down. They actually had to run into some of the local gun stores that were close by and get better, stronger weapons and ammo. Isn't that insane? Like they were ready to do this at all costs. I mean, obviously they ended up losing and the LAPD did a great job that day. But God, I remember that playing out on the news. It was just so dramatic. And then you see the two bodies laying there like, and so nobody else got hurt, right? I can't remember. I know a couple of people got shot. Uh, I know uh, one of the police officers was hurt pretty bad. can't remember if anybody died or not besides the, uh, you know, the suspects, but it was definitely uh, probably one of the biggest shootouts I've ever seen recorded. That's definitely one of the biggest. So speaking of bank robberies, have you watched uh, Evil Genius? Or listen to any podcasts on that story? I did. I watched the Netflix special and, you know, I thought it was pretty well done. You know, I remember that case when it happened, you know, I'm from Jersey. So, you know, it was in Pennsylvania, one state over. So it was something that was, uh, I wouldn't say big news around here, but it was on some of the news stations. And then I remember watching a video. I don't remember where I saw that, but I saw the video and they didn't warn you that the guy was going to explode. <laughs> you know, yes. nah. Not to not to spoil for anybody that's out there that's gonna watch the show, but um, that was a little bit shocking. That I you know that stuck with me for a couple of days. But yeah, that, it was pretty well done. I, I'm always looking for a good Netflix documentary and that came out at the right time, so I, I definitely liked it. Yeah, me too. I mean, I remember, and I don't know which podcast it was, but it was quite a while ago. I remember a podcast covered that story, and I listened to it may have been real crime profile, but I could be totally wrong. But I was fascinated by it. I was like, oh my God, you can't write this stuff. So then I watched the Netflix uh, series. And yeah, I thought it was pretty well done as well. I thought the characters in it were very interesting. So I guess my question to you is, do you think that Brian Wells had any involvement, whether it was, you know, just a little bit of involvement or 
you know, involved in every aspect. I mean, what are your thoughts? I think that he probably did have something to do with it. You know, even on the lower end, you know, it's, hey, we'll give you 500 hours or we'll give you something else. And, you know, maybe, you know, he went along with it thinking that, okay, I'll do this. So I'll, I'll be out and I'll go back to work and I got a little bit of money in my pocket. And it right. definitely didn't go down like that. Yeah, I agree with you. So like, if I were to guess, I mean, I, I think that he was involved in it. I do not believe at all that he knew that the bomb was live. I think he may have willingly let them put the bomb on his neck, even though it was portrayed in the series, maybe by somebody that he didn't know that they just kind of ambushed him and put the bomb around his neck. I think it's possible that he let them put the bomb around his neck, but they told him it was fake. And I say that because I was intrigued by the fact that when he walked into the bank, I mean, all the, you know, surveillance photos of him, he was so calm, like as if nothing was going on. He's sucking on a lollipop. Like, you know, he was just so chill, it seemed. So I definitely don't think that he knew the bomb was live. But I also think that if he got ambushed, you know, and somebody was like, hey, put this thing around your neck. I feel like he would seem more panicked during the bank robbery. and But I, don't, I could be wrong. I mean, but I definitely don't think that he knew the bomb was live. And yeah. then until it started ticking or beeping. Yeah, and I got the same impression because when they showed him in the bank, he was really nonchalant. He was just, you know, like he's in line making a deposit or getting withdrawn and heading out. It was very uh, calm. But the thing I found interesting was the the weird scenarios. You know, oh. how many times do you hear a bomb getting locked, you know, like with a handcuff or whatever it was made out of around somebody's neck? And then there's that homemade gun that was a cane that That's had been, from, you know, it's, it's just the weird aspects of that case it's just so unusual some of the stuff in it it's very 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 unusual and i can only surmise that like i mean the two main characters the guy in the overalls and the lady i forgot her name they were like eccentric and crazy and strange and interesting and all those things wrapped in one so it (laughs) if they're the masterminds i guess it's no surprise that you know this just all aspects of it were very 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 strange yeah, the whole cast of characters were very odd. It was, you know, then they had a couple more distant guys that were involved in it that were really shady themselves. And so you've got this perfect combination of just some really odd people that came together possibly and, and did this. Uh, and then you've got, you know, a guy frozen in the freezer. And one of the guys that's probably involved actually calls the police on this lady about the guy in the freezer. And At it's, his house. you know, what's his thinking? Why is his, why is he doing that? Why is he getting the police involved? So I don't want to get too, <laughs> too much of the way to, to your listeners, but you know, it's definitely some interesting things that happen that make you scratch your head and say, well, why did they do that? And it's a, some of the stuff just doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. And so it's like, it's cases like that where you could just talk about it forever and ever. And probably people will be talking about it for years and years because it's the kind of case where you probably will never know exactly what happened, exactly who all was involved and like to what extent, you know? So it just, it's, it's like that perfect true crime story that people like us like to talk about because you just, it keeps you guessing and you can have your own theory and I can have something totally different, you know, kind of like another, you know, case that I am very fascinated by and I'm sure you're well aware of it is, you know, Adnan Syed, you know, in serial, it's like that same thing where it could be, you know, in one way, somebody could really argue that, you know, yeah, no, Adnan did it. And here's why. But then somebody else could argue and go, no, there's no way. And here's why. And here's who we think did it, you know, and then you talk about Jay and Jen and all that. So uh, have you listened to serial? Are you one of the few who hasn't? Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. 
Nothing is more annoying than having an exciting day planned only to wake up to bad allergies. First world problems, I know, but sometimes allergies ruin my entire day. If you suffer from allergies, I know you understand my struggle. No one wants to go through the day sounding like they're talking underwater. Luckily, we have Astapro. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It is the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Between my daughter's school events, Zoom meetings, and podcast recording sessions, I don't have time to deal with allergy issues. And who wants to listen to a podcast when I sound like this? Luckily, you don't have to, because I use Astapro for quick and effective relief. You're welcome. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. I've listened to... Some of it, but not recently. Okay. Um, unfortunately, that's the downside of, of the podcast, as you know, is not listening to yep. the stuff you want to listen to. So that's been one thing that I have had issues with is making the time to, to listen to all the stuff that I want to listen to. Yeah, Every podcaster says that. And now I'm definitely in the same boat. You know, I only started podcasting less, last year in November. So it's just been a few months. So I was, you know, lucky enough to listen to Serial and all the follow-up podcasts, you know, about the Adnan Syed case before I started podcasting. But you're exactly right. Once you start a podcast, you're now all of a sudden listening to support your friends, you know, your pod friends, number one, but you're also just, you don't have as much time. So you don't really listen to the podcast you want to listen to. You're listening to podcasts for other reasons, but you're listening to a lot less of it just in general because you just don't have the time. Yeah. And that's, that's sort of, I equate it to, you know, to fantasy football because I, you know, I'm a huge football fan and, you know, I used to be a diehard Cowboys fan. And, you know, I'm sure I'll get some hate for that, but, uh, <laughs> I was a big Cowboys fan. I got into fantasy football and then it sort of ruined it for me, you know, because I started rooting for players and I didn't care who won yeah. as long as my uh, fantasy team did good. So yeah, it's sort of the same thing with podcasting. You know, you have all these favorite podcasts that you like and you're looking forward to the new episodes. And then all of a sudden you're, you're doing the podcast and you don't have the time to listen like you want to and you feel like you're missing out on something. I totally feel you on that. And I do feel like I'm missing out. And I, I have all these podcasts that have piled up. And a lot of times too, like I'll record, but then I'll want to listen back so I can make my notes, you know, for the editor, like, Hey, can you cut this part out? Or can you do this here or whatever? And so in my free time, I find myself listening back, you know, to my raw, you know, audio files to make notes for my audio editor. And so it's just like, first of all, I'm sick of myself. <laughs> Second of all, <laughs> it's like, how much Jamie can I listen to? But, um, but yeah, I mean, I used to enjoy, like I used to actually look forward. I used to have a really crazy commute. And the only good part about that is I was 
able to consume so much podcast content and it was great. But now I don't have a commute, which is awesome. I wouldn't trade that for the world. But again, like you said, there's just not enough time in the day. And as soon as, so I try to listen while I'm folding laundry or, but it's usually little spurts. So, you know, even when I'm listening to your show, Criminology, you know, I'll listen in spurts. So I'll listen to like 15 minutes here and then 15 minutes there, which is not the way I want to listen, but it's just kind of the way it has to be because I just don't have an hour usually of like dead time anymore. Yeah, I'm pretty much the same way. I've got to be driving, you know, picking up my daughter at school or doing an errand or cleaning the house, whatever I'm doing. I have to be just have that time where I'm not doing something related to a podcast because, you know, some people can read and research and write and prepare for their podcast with a podcast playing in the background. I'm, I'm not that kind of person. I need to have dead quiet to concentrate on what I'm doing. So I, unfortunately, I can't have like a podcast playing or TV show or anything like that in the background. I need to have silence. So that definitely limits me even further as far as listening time. Yep. I'm the same way. Like my daughter, my teenage daughter, when she studies, she has the music blaring. And I'm like, I don't even know how you retain any information. <laughs> I could never, never do that. So I'm like you, I need dead silence. Otherwise, I just get distracted. Yeah, it's it's just, you know, I, maybe when you're a teenager, they have that, that thing where they can just lock in and, and <laughs> zone in while, while the music's playing in the background. I just can't do it anymore, though. Yeah, she's really good at blocking me, too, when I tell her to do something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think that goes with every age because my seven-year-old's the same way. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so true. So I've got some questions that some listeners ask, and I have a couple questions of my own for you. So you want to get into a little bit of Q&A? Sure. Cool. So. All right. So my friend Tara Lugo, she wants to know which case got you hooked on true crime? Ooh, uh, the first big case that I got into was the Zodiac case. And I, you know, that was back in the 80s when I was in high school. I actually wrote a book about it. And we had to do a book report on whatever book we chose. And I chose the Zodiac case. And it was Robert Graysmith's book, Zodiac. And, you know, I did the report, spent time reading it and thought out the report and wrote it and the, the teacher wasn't happy with the choice that I had made for the book. You know, I thought that the report was pretty good, but they didn't seem to like that. But even before that, I think it was Unsolved Mysteries, the TV show. That's really, that's really what got me into it because I, you know, I, I think it was on Friday nights, you know, and all my friends are out like hanging out and stuff on a Friday night. And I'm like excited for Unsolved Mysteries to come on. So um, I, I loved when I got a VCR as a birthday present because I figured out how to record the show so I could watch it and another time and not miss hanging out on a Friday night with my friends. But that's, um, that's really what got me into it because I was just fascinated that there were so many cases out there with no answers to them. And, and this is before the internet, obviously. So you had no real way of exploring a lot of the cases that were out there. And so Unsolved Mysteries was that first, you sort of broadened my horizons as far as the amount of cases that are out there that needed answers. Yeah, you know, you're so right. I absolutely remember Unsolved Mysteries. And that was something I used to watch because my mom watched it. She's always been into true crime, too. And so as a kid, I would sit there right next to her and, and I was fascinated by it. But I do remember as a kid being a little like scared, you know, because the music they played, I can't I can't think of the music right now. But I just remember like I'm drawing a memory of the, of the music being kind of creepy. But yeah, I loved that show. And that's actually, if I think really far back, that was before, you know, obviously OJ and all the big cases, you know, blew up. But uh, yeah, that and like Dateline, you know, Dateline's been going on for at least a couple decades, if not three decades. And I used to watch yeah. that with my mom too. But yeah, Unsolved Mysteries was a good one. That, that was a great show. It's one of the original, I think, true crime shows, you know, 
Dateline, Forensic Files, mm -hmm. some of those older ones that aren't on anymore, but you can still find them on YouTube. Every once in a while, I like to go check out one of those older shows on YouTube and uh, watch one of the cases, especially for Saul, because then you can go back and watch the original thing and then find out who did it. So that's always cool. That is cool. Yeah. And as far as Zodiac, I mean, uh, that is, you know, we'll get into that too, because I think one of the questions has to do with that. But um, I hope they catch that guy if he's still alive and I could pick your brain for hours and ask you all kinds of questions as far as, you know, who you think might have done it now that, you know, you've done a deep dive into the case on criminology. But uh, yeah, I, all, what I can say is I just, I hope that they catch him. And uh, I know they're trying to use DNA. I had read an article that they're trying to use DNA in the same way that they caught GSK to try and get a match for Zodiac. Is that is that what you read as well? Yeah. So that article is, I think, a little misleading. You know, essentially the headline was that, but in closer in reading it through the article, what they're trying to do is establish DNA good enough to put into that database. Gotcha. So they're actually trying to, to get a sample that, can be submitted to that database, but they hope to eventually submit it and get some answers to the way they did with the Golden State Killer. So that's interesting. So, and obviously with Zodiac, you know, these were not sex crimes, but certainly there's other ways of leaving your DNA behind. So is it like touch DNA? Is it? They did have some touch DNA. They had uh, some clothesline that he had tied people up with that they actually tried to do touch DNA with, but they didn't have any uh, success with that going back probably five or six years ago, I think it was now that they tried that. And then, you know, they did have a hair underneath a stamp on an envelope that he had mailed, and they tested that. They compared it to like their, the most well-known suspect, Arthur Lee Allen, and it didn't match. But the problem is you don't know if the hair was the letter carrier that brought the mail to somebody's you know, mailbox right. or if it belonged to the Zodiac. So now they've taken the step of trying to find DNA under this the glue on the envelopes where he would you know, lick it. Okay. Um, and they are trying to get some DNA from that because that's more likely to be his. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if they do get a good sample that they can submit to the database. I hope so. And obviously, just like GSK, you know, he wasn't thinking about when he was committing his crimes, you know, as far as like, you know, leaving DNA behind because, you know, back then they didn't have a way, the technology to catch people, you know, with DNA. And so now that's what, you know, that's obviously ultimately what led to GSK's arrest. But I hope they can do the same with Zodiac. You know, when he was licking that envelope, I'm sure he wasn't, it wasn't even a thought in his mind that, oh, if I lick this, they're going to get my saliva, they're going to get my DNA. I mean, his crimes were so far back. I mean, I highly doubt that he'd be thinking about something like that so hopefully they do get that dna that that would be awesome yeah and if you, if you had asked me you know a year ago you know if i thought the zodiac case would be solved i would say no mm -hmm. but just you know seeing the golden state killer case solved the way it was solved you know it just opens up the possibilities you know there's just another case from washington double murder solved that was like 30 years old solved the same exact way they've submitted dna to mm -hmm to Jed Match and, and got a hit and found, you know, traced the family line so they got to the right guy. So it it, it definitely works, that that uh, process. It's just a question in the Zodiac case is how good is the DNA that they have, how well-preserved, and can they get a good quality sample to submit to that database? Yeah, so then let's go a step further. If they get a good quality sample and they submit it, you know, is there a chance that they're just not going to find any familial ties, you know, to his DNA? Or how does that work? Well, so usually law enforcement, they go through national databases like, you know, the FBI's database, of course, and then they have uh, state databases, uh, 
some criminal databases, things like that, that they have access to, and they'll trial those first, and then they'll try to go through public databases, and that's sort of what GenMatch is. You know, because you can't just go to Ancestry.com or 23andMe.com and say, hey, here's this Golden State Killer sample. I want you to compare it to everybody's DNA in your system and tell me who they're related to, because... The privacy laws they have in place won't let them do that. And then they need to get a, a warrant from a court to do that. And it's it's very hard to get a broad warrant to just say, hey, I want to test this DNA against every DNA sample in your database until I find out who's related to this guy. So that's the hurdle with, you know, going through one of those private databases. But, you know, GEDmatch, they say right on their website, we share your information. Do not submit your DNA unless you, you know, are ready for it to be shared with whoever wants access to it. That's, you know, their policy. And people submitted their DNA knowing, you know, that's their policy. So the police checked it out to make sure that they were going about it the right way. And they felt confident that they were and they weren't. They wouldn't come up later on that it was a, a violation somehow of privacy. And they submitted the Golden State Killer's DNA in there. And luckily, they did find several relatives. You know, but it's a question of, is it a, a 17th cousin? I mean, <laughs> yeah. uh, because then it's good luck trying to track down, you know, the right person. But, you know, I think they got second or third cousins. Uh, and then that makes it a lot easier because then it's just a question of, having a genealogy person track the entire family tree until you get to the right person. And that's what they did in the Golden State Killer case. It's so amazing. And I think I commented on one of, you know, your social media posts or somebody's recently that, yeah, I mean, this just seeing how GSK got caught, it just reminds us all that it is very possible that now the Zodiac case, it could be solved. You know, I, and just like you, if you would ask me a year ago, I'd been like, no, that, that case is pretty much done. You know, they've tried everything. It's probably not going to be solved. But now we kind of all have new hope. And this is amazing. And I think that we're going to see obviously so much more of this crime solving this way. We live in a whole different world from the days of when these guys were committing their crimes. So it, it'll be very interesting. I'll be on the edge of my seat waiting for more news to come out about Zodiac. Yeah, I think, yeah, not just Zodiac, I think a lot of cases have a really good chance of being solved now. I think it's going to be like a domino effect. I think we're going to see a lot more cases being solved the same way. You know, I've reached out to a bunch of people that I know, you know, in law enforcement and, you know, people that have relatives that, you know, were murdered. And I'm telling them, if you have DNA in your database, you can submit it and go about it this way. And this is how it worked. And, you know, I'm pretty much pimping out Paul Holes. <laughs> awesome. I'm, 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 I'm like, call Paul. I'll put you in touch with Paul and you can ask him how it's done. Yeah. You know, so it's a question of some of these places, you know, the investigators themselves aren't the most, you know, intelligent as far as uh, how DNA works and, and what can be done with it. And they rely on, you know, labs that they work with to, to tell them how it works. You know, where somebody like Paul Holes came from a lab. He, that's where he started out mm -hmm. uh, before he was an investigator. So he had that background to really know the ins and outs of DNA and what could be done with it. So I, I think it's important that anybody out there, you know, with a DNA evidence in a case, it can be solved. You know, I think if you can get it in that database, you should be running to, to put it in there because I think there's a real good chance that you'll you'll find a relative. Yeah, I think that that's a, a great thought. And, you know, I, it's something I, had, I hadn't thought of. It's like, you know, I think a lot of police departments Departments, like you said, detectives, that's not their expertise. I mean, some of them may be very familiar with how DNA works, but I would say for the most part, that's not their expertise. And so, you know, for me, you know, I'm in the true crime world in that, you know, I have a podcast and I have podcast friends who have true crime podcasts, but, you know, so I'm 
familiar with this GSK, you know, development and the, you know, how it, how it happened. But, you know, we can't take for granted that like everybody's really following this case as closely as we are and then running to like the DNA, you know, labs to submit all of their, their DNA evidence, you know, so it takes people being an advocate, you know, like you, it sounds like you're, you're, you're reaching out to your law enforcement buddies saying, Hey, did you know, you know, you can do this. And, um, that's, you know, just somebody speaking up like you could just prompt certain police departments to go, Hey, I've got some DNA sent around, you know, why not try it? Like you said, what have you got to lose? So it'll be interesting. I think we're going to see, like you said, it's going to be a snowball effect. Yeah, that's what I'm hoping for. I hope so too. So my friend Jamie Trevino wants to know, what's your favorite podcast? Oh, (laughs) yeah, I think we touched on that. I I wish I could listen to to more. Uh, Obviously, I listen to Murder, of course. Um, Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I, I like a lot of them. I mean, I, I like Generation Y, you know, Crawl Space, Already Gone, The Trial Went Cold. You know, there's just so many of them that I, I like and I listen to when I can. And I try and split them up and just find an hour here and hour there. I'll see a case that I, I think sounds interesting and I'll make it a point to listen to it. But, you know, the people that I've talked to and met that are podcasters and have podcasts are really just really awesome people. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, there's a couple of prima donnas, we won't mention names, but <laughs> for the most part, everybody is really friendly and yes. sort of uh, like uh, there's a camaraderie. So I always want to support, you know, people as much as I can, even if it's as much as, you know, tweeting something, sharing something or just a, a download, listening to an episode. You know, it's, it's always good to see if you can help your fellow podcasters. So I try and, and fit in as many podcasts as I can. And if, if I can't listen to them directly, I'll at least, uh, you know, try and engage with them on social media and, and help spread the word. Yeah, yeah, I've seen it. And you you definitely have been that way. You've been so supportive of, you know, other podcasts. And I honestly, I think that's the biggest um it's the biggest factor in podcast growth is just all of us helping each other. Because I always say like, you know, like you said, there's a few prima donnas and they're the exception and not the rule. You know, the ones that kind of feel like, hey, I only I want to be on top and I don't want to tell you my secrets and I don't want to help help you with your little podcast. But for the most part, like 99.9% of podcasters I've come across are like, hey, let me give you a helping hand. Let me give you some advice. Let me retweet your tweet. Let me give you a, a, an iTunes review. And it's been such, you know, for me personally, has been a huge reason why my podcast has grown at all is other podcasters playing my promo or tweeting about it or, you know, just like you said. So, you know, us indie podcasters really, really appreciate the true crime community because it's just, uh, you know, it helps a lot with growth and there's enough success out there for everybody. So, you know, me helping out some other podcast that's just getting started like I was, you know, a few months ago, it's not going to take away from my podcast. You know what I mean? But I think that there's a you know, maybe a couple of podcasters out there who have that frame of mind. But, you know, for the most part, all podcasters that I've come across have been really, really cool, like like you, super supportive and uh, just willing to do anything and everything to help other podcasters out. And it's been awesome. And I've made so many new friends. Yeah, that's the fun part of it because then you start, you know, doing things like we're doing where you're asking to come on your show and, you know, it gives me a chance to talk with you a little bit more than I normally could. Um, and it's just, just fun to sort of have casual conversations with people that are doing the same thing, you know, that you're doing. And, and another thing, I think that with true crime podcasts, you know, obviously there's a million of them out there now, but there's something for everybody's taste, you know? So if you don't like criminology, if it's too long and too involved, you're going to find a bunch of shorter, you know, uh, episodes that are more, you know, what you're looking for. Um, so, 
you know, if you don't like some, some laughter and some humor mixed in with your true crime, then you can just go with, with an all serious one or vice versa. If, if stuff is too serious and uh, too heavy for you, you've got plenty that you can find where you can get a couple laughs in while you're listening to it. So that's what's cool about the true crime you know, podcasting genre, I think there's something for everybody. Oh, yeah. And I, I think it's so cool, too. And actually, I was pleasantly surprised the other day. I didn't even know. Um, I was binging on, uh, I forgot what it's called, but it's something like Golden State Killer, It's Not Over. And there's Morph. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, there's Morph on TV. So you had a lot of um, screen time on that. And I thought that was just so cool. And I know that, you know, the ladies of, you know, My Favorite Murder have been on some TV shows. I know that Aaron from uh, Generation Y you know, he was on a show that I saw. So I love seeing podcasters on true crime TV. I just think that's such a cool crossover that it just shows you podcasting is, is, is really one of the fastest growing forms of media and podcasters are getting noticed. And I just thought that was so cool. So how, how was that experience being on TV? It was, um, it's definitely different from, from hosting a podcast. Um, you know, your, your long days, when those, when those people go to work, they go to work. I mean, they're there at like 8 a.m. and they say, okay, we're going to try and get done by 5 o'clock. And then you, it's 7 o'clock rolls around and, and it's like, all right, we're, we've been here 11 hours or something like that. And then finally somebody's like, we have to wrap it up. We're not allowed to work past a certain amount of hours or whatever. So this, those people are hardcore, this, this TV crew. So that was a new experience for me, but they, uh, they were all very cool, but it's sort of a weird atmosphere because you're, you know, you've got all these cameras in your face and you've got these, uh, microphones hanging over you and stuff like that. But anytime you can, you can talk about something like that and be involved with a project like that, I think is, uh, is pretty cool. I thought it was really, really cool. So kudos, you know, on that. I thought that was awesome. And I had no idea that you were involved in that. So when I saw it, I was like, holy shit, there's Morph. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And I actually did a, um, a behind the scenes thing with uh, the Zodiac uh, series that they had on History Channel. Awesome. Um, so I, I, I do a little bit of TV stuff, you know, whether behind the camera or from the camera or whatever, because I'm always trying to stay busy. I just, you know, I don't like to sit still and not do something i feel like i'm missing out on on, be, on doing something if i'm not working so you know i was like to do that kind of stuff oh that's awesome sarah norton host of the salty canadian podcast wanted to know i may know the answer to this but i'll ask you anyway since the capture of golden state killer who do you hope they will catch next using dna hmm the, the zodiac one would be the obvious one right um, right <laughs> for our podcast, obviously. Yeah. Uh, you know, that would be really cool. Oh, my God. Uh, but, would, has already blown up. But you would be like the atom bomb of podcasts yeah. if that happened. Yeah, somebody said if that happens and they cover you, your case next, then you better watch out. But um, The one that I think I really want to see solved is the Delphi murders. Oh. Um, that is just really heartbreaking and the fact when I, when that case broke in early 2017, I had just launched my uh, true crime blog, and their case was one of the first cases I wrote about. And I had a feeling when I was writing it, I said to myself, "If this case isn't solved quickly, it might not be solved at all." And I just had this weird feeling. I don't know why, but I wrote about it, I researched it, I paid attention to the news, I, I got all the recordings I could, and put it all in into the blog and. And then they came out with this, they, admit, they announced they had DNA and it sounded great and they were going to fast track the DNA and then we've never heard anything else about the DNA. So it, it's kind of, you know, when you have that much press on you and this guy's plastered all over every news channel and uh, across the country and they still can't catch him. 
you know, that's very frustrating. So if they do have DNA for him, I hope that they're going to put it into a database and then track down a family tree and, and get to this guy eventually. I hope so too. And I unfortunately have not listened to any podcasts or followed the Delphi murders, but I certainly know about them just being in the true crime community. And obviously I think there was a session at um, CrimeCon about the Delphi murders, right? Yeah. 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 And I met their family and they're, you know, they're from the Midwest. They're real easygoing and, you know, obviously not used to having the press focusing on them. And I think it was a new, you know, obviously it's an experience that nobody wants to go through as a parent or a grandparent or whatever. But on top of that, to have, you know, the national press at your front door and you're thrust into the spotlight for such a, an awful way, I think it was a, sort of a shock to them. Yeah. Um, so I, I just, you know, again, I, and I've been corresponding with uh, Liberty's sister and, you know, we send some messages back and forth and she's just now figure out a way to get on social media and get uh, get the word out and start spreading, you know, stuff. And, and that's sort of what I think needs to be done is the more people that hear about it, the more chances they'll get a tip and, you know, social media might be a good way to, to make it get to the right person that's going to know something and come forward. I hope so. And uh, we've got all kinds of, you know, different forms of media that we didn't have, you know, way back when now to get stories out. I think social media is huge. And then obviously you've got advancing technology, you know, and DNA and all that. So it's um, hopefully, you know, that the guy will get caught because that's just such a tragedy. But um, it's, it's interesting to see like you definitely, you know, a lot of us true crime podcasters, we don't interact much with like, you know, maybe the victim's family or like the perpetrator's families or anything like that. But you seem to obviously have a lot of contact with some of Golden State Killers victims. And then it sounds like you've talked to some of the family from the, you know, the Delphi murders. How does that weigh on you um, being so closely connected to these people? You know, when I set out to do it, when I got involved in the Golden State Killer case, I didn't know that I was going to wind up, you know, meeting the family, becoming friends with victims, family members, and the victims themselves that lived, survivors. And then it was a really eye-opening experience, you know, wake-up call, because now you've you've got these people that you're talking to face-to-face, and they're no longer on paper. They're not, a, you know, a statistic in an article or in a police report. They're a real person. You know, so it sort of affected me to where I, uh, I sort of relooked at the way that I, you know, view cases and there's sort of a realistic, a face yeah. to the crimes now, if that makes sense. Oh, for sure. Um, and, and the podcast that I'm going to start now that I'm going to be launching soon is called The Murder in My Family. And what I hope to do is talk to a lot of, you know, people, interview a lot of people that have had a murder in their family and to get not just how everything happened, but to see how it affected them and if they were able to get closure and if they're still hunting down the killer and, and just help keep the case out there so they can get the whatever kind of closure they need. But it, it's definitely been a, a positive experience because now I have a bunch of friends that I didn't have before. And, you know, unfortunately, it's because of, you know, some really bad circumstances that I'm friends with them. But uh, it was really good to see them in particular get closure. So anytime I talk to somebody that's going through a similar situation, it sort of makes me approach it a little bit differently than I would have maybe a couple of years ago. Yeah, definitely. I can totally understand what you're saying as far as it just makes it more real. Like you obviously knew when you got into it, these are real people. But when you see them on paper and then you see them in person and you see probably the pain in their eyes or 
and you hear the pain in their voice and it just makes it that much more 3D for you. But I can see, you know, just being at CrimeCon, I can see that, you know, these families really respect you. And um, I think that they really appreciate what you're doing. And I do think that what you're doing is helping. So I think that's great. So, you know, more power to you in that regard, because I'm sure not everybody's able to do that, you know, get that close um, because it's a very tough situation, but uh, you're definitely helping. So I, I admire you for that. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. So Tara Lugo asks, if you could interview Golden State Killer, what questions would you ask him? Wow. Hey, I would hmm. love to know that too. I, you know, to be honest with you, um, yeah, I'm not really scared of many people. I think I'd be freaked out to be in the same cell as a serial killer like him, even though physically I think I wouldn't, you know, have a problem defending myself against them, but I, I just there's something that scares me about being in the same room that's with somebody that did that kind of stuff. But I think I'd want to know the obvious question is why? What's going through your mind that's making you do this? What happened to you when you were younger? I mean, with this case, you know, I always knew in the back of my mind, I just visioned you know, that one day I'd find out who this guy was and I would go back and find his picture in a yearbook and he would not be smiling. And sure enough, as soon as I found out this guy's name, I went back and found the picture in the yearbook and he was not smiling. Um, And then, you know, there's some things that have come to light. His father divorced his mom and left the family while they were still, you know, school age. And it's been alleged that he witnessed his sister being raped by a couple of men when he was, I think, eight or nine or ten or something like that. Um, and not that that's an excuse to do what he did, but it, it makes me wonder what, you know, is it because of something that was wrong when he was born? Or is it something that, you know, he learned as a result of some kind of experience or treatment? Now? So that part fascinates me. I just want to know answers. And I, I want to know um you know, profilers and, and, and different investigators probably want to talk to them so they can get a sense of how to stop other people like him. So that's one thing I'd like to see, if not me, you know, talk to them about. I'd love to see profilers, investigators, whoever can talk to them and learn what they can from them. So I hope he actually starts talking so, you know, we can get those kind of answers. I hope so, too. I'm fascinated by that as well. And I really, really hope he talks because like somebody like Jeffrey Dahmer, you know, he did interviews and, and I feel like we learned you know, you learn a lot. I mean, he was just very open about what he did. And he just basically, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but it's like, look, I'm sick. Don't let me out of prison because this is what I do. I can't help it. You know, I don't know if he he didn't say that, but it's like, that's just what he does. I mean, he has an urge to kill people and eat them. And, you know, so I hope, and then, you know, you had Ted Bundy who did some interviews. And I think that Ted Bundy didn't come off as open as uh, Jeffrey Dahmer. I think Ted Bundy held back a lot, but, you know, I really would like to hear from D'Angelo as well, Golden State Killer. I want to know what he has to say for himself, but um, I agree with you. He's got a very terrifying face. Um <laughs> I don't know how his defense attorney, like the one thing that made me cringe was when he was in court sitting in the wheelchair, she had her hands on him and she was bending down, getting right in his face and whispering to him and talking to him. And of course she's doing her job, but I'm just saying, knowing what he did to, to even put your hands on that man and to get so close to his face, knowing I mean, he's, he's such a monster, you know? Yeah. And I think a lot of people were sort of creeped out by that same thing. You know, she was 
bending over, touching him, and just like she was having a casual conversation with somebody that she knew. And it's just, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think she's doing her job, and she wants to appear that she's representing him well as well, you know, and talking to him and interacting with him. So, you know, I think that's part of her image of giving him the right representation. So, but I totally agree with you. It's kind of freaky to see somebody like that being surrounded and touched by by other people. It's just, it's just really weird. And now the most recent stuff, they have him standing up. He seems to have his faculties back and he's in a cage and that's, that's where he belongs in, in some kind of cage in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. And um, just that mouth that he has, like it's a frown. It's a constant frown. Like he looks like he doesn't even have the ability to smile. You know what I mean? He just looks so miserable, so monstrous. So yeah, again, this is going to be so interesting to see how it unfolds. I hope like you do that he talks. I don't want to get my hopes up because a lot of times they won't. But, you know, I, I would love to hear what he has to say for himself. So I guess more to come on that, right? Yeah, I hope so. And, you know, some of these guys, when they have time to think about it, they realize, all right, I'm not going anywhere. So I'm, I'm caught. They own it and they just start spilling, you know, because now you get attention or now you can get a better sentence or I can get a better cell, you know, different things they can get out of. They start figuring out what benefits them at this point. And it's interesting because, you know, I have this question of who he really is, what he really looks like, how he really talks. Because you see him in the wheelchair and you see him like standing there in the jail, in the cage, and he sort of looks like he can't understand what's going on. But we actually have, you know, in this episode coming up the season finale of season two of Criminology, we have somebody that we interviewed that worked with him. And it's, you know, he has some really interesting stories of D'Angelo having all his faculties. And, you know, Paul Holes told us that he was riding a motorcycle at 100 miles an hour just days before being arrested. So I think a lot of what we see is probably an act. Yeah, um, me too. But it'll be interesting to see if he if he just drops it and, and opens up. I hope so. And I cannot wait to hear the season finale of Criminology and, and to hear from somebody who knew D'Angelo. And I had mentioned to you at, at CrimeCon, I've been trying for a while to secure an interview with somebody who came across my interest, um, who was actually very good friends with D'Angelo, Golden State Killer. And he was neighbors with him. He lived right behind him. And this was during the time when he was raping. I don't know if he had murdered yet, but he was on his raping spree. And uh, I think they were good friends and neighbors for four to five years. And he told me, he didn't tell me, so this is not firsthand, but he told a very good friend of mine uh, some very interesting things about D'Angelo. One of them being that he did have a motorcycle that was like his prized possession and he would clean it with a Q-tip. And then when he was done cleaning it, he'd go around the neighborhood and ride it. And then he would bring it back and clean it again with a Q-tip. And uh, he was very particular about things like that. And I think I've heard stories about him yelling at neighbors because they cut their grass too short or too long, or I I don't know what it was. So there was that. And then the guy also said that um, he had bouts of anger. And one particular uh, instance, he got so angry, he started throwing his motorcycle around the garage. I mean, he was absolutely irate and it lasted about 10, 15 minutes. And then he cooled down and things, I guess, were fine. But yeah, he he, he said some interesting things about him. I I really would love to speak with this guy to get more information, but uh, it just hasn't happened yet. But yeah, it it definitely seems like D'Angelo is sort of a, um, an odd duck to say the least. Yeah. And you, it's, it's interesting when you can get, how often you get access to somebody that knows a serial killer works with them and can share stories with you. And I'll touch on one thing just because it's, it's really interesting. But one of the things we talk about in this episode is that D'Angelo had, you know, 
grandchildren or a grandchild, and he built her a, a fort in the back of his, uh, somewhere in his yard, I believe. And it was a pretty good sized fort, and it wasn't just a typical little tiny, you know, couple boards that you strap together and, and call it a fort. This was well made, and one of the guys that worked with him went to his house, and he was giving them a tour, showing them the whole yard, and of course it's all nice and manicured. And um, when they came to the fort, he said, "Oh, that's nice," you know. And he said, "That's my daughter's fort that I built, or my granddaughter's fort that I built her." And he started showing. He says, "Check out this glass. See this glass? You can't break it. There's no way to come through this glass. I've got it rigged so that if you try to shatter it and try to crawl through it, you you get cut up really bad." And then, you know, he said, and check out the door. It's got three deadbolts on it. So he had reinforced this little fort for his granddaughter to keep out the kind of people that that wow. he used to be. And so it's just, it, it makes me wonder what's going through his mind. Does he does he actually have in his heart that he cares for this this girl? And he's trying to protect her from people like himself. But it, it just it's just one of those crazy things that now it's, it's got me wondering more what's going through his mind. So it's definitely interesting. Oh, that is interesting. No, I can't wait to listen to the season finale to hear from, the, you know, the person who worked with him because I think that's when when you when people ask you know like anybody who's into true crime I think nine out of ten of us say the reason why we're into it is like I'm interested in the psych I want to jump inside a serial killer's brain for example and just see exactly what is going on how did they get formed into a monster what makes their brain so different from mine and from my neighbor next door who's you know just average Joe Schmo what makes them different so yeah the psych of it all is what fascinates me so I want to get inside you know D'Angelo's head as much as possible because it's fascinating it's disgusting it's disgusting what he did and, and nobody condones it and it's just it's the worst of the worst but it doesn't stop me from wanting to just know how was that monster formed, you know? So Yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see, you know, if, if any of that comes out. Yeah, definitely. So I won't keep you much longer, but I do have another question from a listener, Mary Bright. So she says, this one's about Zodiac. She says, are there any murders strongly believed to be committed by Zodiac but haven't been linked yet? Probably uh, there's a couple different cases, you know, Sherry Joe Bates and... Riverside in 1966 um, is a possible victim, but I think it's more than likely that he did not kill her. But he's linked to that case by handwriting, by letters he sent in her case, claiming that he killed her. Uh, And then also in 1963 in Santa Barbara, there's a young couple down there named Linda Edwards and Robert Domingo that murdered on a beach. And the MO is very similar to his MO that he used at Lake Berryessa in Napa. It's been classified information, but there's been some people inside that have been saying that wing walker boots were found at the crime scene, the tracks there, that matched the wing walker tracks at Lake Berryessa. Um, so I don't know if that's true, but that's just something that I've heard. So if that's the case, it might make it more interesting that he could have been involved in, in those 1963 murders. Well, I hope we get to find out. And um, I'd mentioned to this to you before, but just interestingly enough, one of my former clients at that bank that I just got done telling you about where we got robbed in Redlands, his name was Brian Hartnell. He's a victim of the Zodiac. He was the one that was on Lake Berryessa with his lady friend at the time. And uh, he, Brian now, he's lived in Loma Linda, which borders Redlands. Uh, he's lived there for a long time or, or worked there. He has an office there. He's an attorney. 
but you know, I, I don't think he talks much about his ordeal these days. But he, this was, you know, so many decades ago. But yeah, he was a victim. He was the one that was on Lake Berryessa with his lady friend, and Zodiac came up and, as you know, stabbed them both repeatedly, tied them up, and unfortunately, she died from her wounds, and he made it. I, you know, he was lucky enough to live barely. But yeah, it's interesting. I, I there's. I wonder if the one in Riverside, I thought the same thing when I watched the special, the victim in Riverside, I wondered if she was tied to Zodiac or not. But yeah, he claimed it. But like, how do we know that, you know, it actually was connected, that it was him? You know, I think a lot of killers are pretty narcissistic and they want to claim that prize, so to speak. Yeah, and I think Zodiac in particular like to capitalize on other people's murders so he can get credit for it and get attention. But, um, you know, and I think going back to Brian Hart now, it's it's interesting how much of a small role it is for true crime people that, you know, here you are with a true crime podcast and, and you know somebody that's involved in, you know, one of the most horrific or I don't want to say famous, infamous is probably a better word, uh, true crime cases in American history. So it's just a, a really small world for the true crime, you know, people that do podcasts. It definitely is. And, and Brian is a very, very, very nice guy. He's really, really tall, really smart guy. He runs a really successful, you know, law firm. But, you know, I remember working at the bank and he came in one day and let us all know that that movie, I think they called it just the Zodiac, right? The Zodiac. Zodiac yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was like, hey, the movie's, you know, coming out. Do you guys want to come to an advanced, you know, screening with me? And so he invited all the entire branch of Community Bank in Redlands to the movie theater in Redlands. And we all, you know, watched the uh, the advanced screening of the movie with him. And that was pretty cool. But um, wow, that's, yeah. that's pretty neat. Yeah, it was really neat. But yeah, he was lucky enough to survive. Gosh, what a story. It's almost one of those kind of things. Like if he mentions it at a party, you know, like somebody's like, yeah, right. You know, like, who is this guy? Yeah. He's not a victim of one of the most infamous serial killers, but. Um, yeah. Or if he mentions it at CrimeCon, the entire place just stops and, and listens. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, they're surrounding him and they're quiet. And it would be. You hear a pin drop. <laughs> oh, totally. And this is probably like the worst word to use, but he would be like a rock star at CrimeCon, right? He would be like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, falling at his feet. Tell us your story, you know, because they'd be fascinated by him. Yeah. I have one other question, and this is just from me. Are there any cases in particular you like talking about? You know, like I said earlier, you know, the Adnan case, Adnan Sayed really gets me going. I love talking about it with people. Are there any cases that we haven't already talked about that you really like to talk about because you're just so interested and fascinated by them? I've got a lot of smaller cases that are lesser known cases. Some are back here on the East Coast, some of them are, you know, middle of the country. It just so happens that I got heavily involved in some California cases, but there's a lot of smaller cases that not many people know about that I think are really fascinating. And sometimes it's hard to talk about them with people because I'll say a name of them, like who? You know, so that's always an issue for me because I don't have that many people close to me that are friends that I hang out with that are as into true crime as I am. So I can't really talk about them. And then I have to find somebody that knows something about a case. Um, to where I can have some dialogue with them uh, if it's a case that is a lesser-known case. So I try and write about those kinds of cases on my blog at truecrime.com just because they don't get attention. They're ones that are forgotten about for the most part. And I always just, I think they're fascinating. And 
you know, I think other people would find fascinating as well. So I'd like to write about some of the ones when I have time that I think are interesting. You know, and that's a really, really cool thing about true crime podcasts too, is that so many of them are out there doing such good work for these smaller, lesser known cases that haven't had, you know, a TV show made out of them or haven't been splashed all over the news or haven't made national attention. And uh, I just think that's, you know, there's some podcasters that are doing some really, really great work. Uh, and I do think that podcasts can be and probably already have been and will continue to be used as a vehicle to try and help solve crimes, missing person cases. You know, there's just really no end to what you could do with the podcast, the attention you can bring. So, um, you know, I find that really cool when you find those podcasts that are covering the lesser known cases, because those are the ones who need it most. Yeah, I agree with you. There's so many cases out there that people just want any kind of help they can get, any kind of exposure, any kind of chance to tell their story. And see if they can get some kind of closure. So as many podcasts are out there, it's good to see that a lot of them do cover uh, some of those lesser known cases. Yeah. And it was really cool. You probably saw this too at CrimeCon. There were several people there that I saw and talked to myself who had been sent by a family member of a victim of a crime. They had been sent there to actually seek out podcast hosts who will tell their story and help, you know, either find their missing loved one or bring justice for their murdered loved one. You know, there was one girl in particular where, you know, I talked to her for a little while and she was so passionate. I mean, it, it almost would bring you to tears to talk to her. You know, she was trying to get justice for her sister, who her and her family firmly believe was murdered by a serial killer. But her murder has just not been attached to him yet, so to speak. And so she's trying to get justice. And she was walking around with a petition, telling the story over and over and over again. And, uh, it was really, really sad, but I also admired how strong she was and her uh, tenacity to go to CrimeCon and just tell anybody and any everybody who would listen about her sister's story. Yeah, and that's the cool thing about having a true crime podcast because you can actually make a difference and, and help somebody that needs help. So, you know, I think that's, you know, a lot of people get into true crime podcasts for different reasons. But if you want to get into it to help people, that's it's a really admirable thing to do. It is. Well, I think more if I've taken up enough of your time, I think it's like 1130 where you're at, isn't it? You're probably tired and ready for bed. Yeah, it's getting there. So, uh, you know, I'm always uh, working into the night, but when I get the chance, I definitely go to bed early if I can. Yeah, no, I, I see that. But I also want to ask you, where can people find you? And is there anything you've got a lot of things going on, a lot of projects, you know, anything you'd like to promote? Well, I'm, you know, we're in between seasons of criminology. We just recorded, again, the final episode of season two, and that'll be out this Saturday. But I'm doing some other projects, you know, I can't talk about them fully yet because we're still working on them. But the one that I definitely have in the works is the murder in my family. I'll be on Twitter with that. And then also you can find me at truecrimeguy.com or with the handle truecrimeguy on Twitter as well. Uh, and I usually, whatever I'm working on, I'll usually put it out there and keep people up to date. Awesome. No, I'm looking forward to you know listening and to maybe watching some of your you know projects that you've got in the works and uh, appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. I've been wanting to get on the phone with you. It's cool. You and I just kind of connected just a few months ago and I, I admire you as a podcaster. I, you know, criminology, I tell anybody and everybody who will listen about your podcast because it's just you and Mike do really, really good work. And I can see your tireless efforts, the research and the writing that goes into it. It's admirable what you guys are doing. I don't even know how you're going to be working on another podcast, plus your other projects and your blog. So you eat, sleep and breathe this stuff, but it's admirable. And no, I'm definitely a fan and I've had a lot of fun chatting with you, Morph. Yeah, I appreciate it. And 
I like listening to your show and it was definitely fun talking to you. I like having casual conversations with cool people. So I appreciate you having me on. Heck yeah. Anytime. Let's do it again soon. Well, before I started the podcast, I always envisioned like having a co-host just for various reasons. And that was one of them just to kind of bounce off some of the work, you know, because I knew what my strengths were, but I also knew what my weaknesses were. And definitely the tech side is like, and it's that kind of thing where it's like, okay, I'm 40 years old. I'm never going to go and like teach myself how to be tech savvy, even if I could, you know? Yeah. And I still don't know, uh, you know, I'm about to launch my own podcast on the side and I still don't know the editing stuff. Yep. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm working on a couple of things. I'm looking at some different ideas. I found a really good guy that can do up to one hour worth of editing and uh, does a really good job and has a really good reputation. And if he shirt is like $65 for one hour episode, completely uploaded to uh, Lipson or whatever. So um, I'm thinking about going with him because it would just take the, the stuff that I can't do away from me and let him do it professionally. So we'll see how that works. But I'm so simple that I don't even know how to record. This is going to laugh, but <laughs> I don't even know how to record. If I want to just start talking into this microphone and record it, I don't even have an app on my computer that will do that. <laughs> um, everybody's telling me to try Audacity. Oh, yeah. And I've looked at it and I've studied it and I've watched a couple of videos about it. It just seems so difficult. Everybody says it's easy. I, I don't know. I just watched, you know, three hours worth of videos on it. I was like, you know, I don't want to do this. The tech part of it is just not something I, I want to get into because I can't even imagine the time that it takes oh. on top of the writing and the research and all that stuff and the recording to turn around and have to edit it. So, yeah, well, you know, people, I, like you, even people who know how to edit, I'm hearing they take like, you know, they're like, oh, sometimes it takes about four hours for a one hour, oh, yeah. one hour of content. I'm like, oh my gosh, I could never do it. Oh yeah. It's just, you know, I, I don't know how people do it. And that's not something I like to do is sit around, you know, going through audio and just listening to, you know, different things. But you know, a lot of times Mike will do the editing and he'll send me the copy and then I'll just sit back and listen to it. Like I'm listening to an episode and look out for spots that he might have missed. But it definitely helps when you have somebody that can work with you that knows the stuff you don't know. (laughs) So, and I think that money will be well spent. So I'm like you, I am not an editor. And when I started the podcast, I thought, oh, I'm going to do everything on my own. I'm going to edit. I'm going to research. I'm going to write. I'm going to record. I'm going to do everything. And I quickly downloaded um, Audacity. And of course, I was completely overwhelmed at first. I'm like, this looks like a foreign language to me. This is not, you know, at all familiar to me. So I did like you. I went to like the school of YouTube and the school of Google and just kind of taught myself some very, very, very basic editing. So like, I know how to do a few things with editing, but I realized very quickly that it would probably take me like eight hours to edit one episode versus somebody who knows how to, you know, what they're doing. It takes them four hours and that's still time that I really don't have. So yeah, yeah, so I taught myself how to record. So I do record into Audacity and it actually is so, 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 so easy. All I do is record and I used to like pause when I needed to take a drink of water or cough or whatever. I actually now just do a straight recording and I have a guy too that does my editing for me. He's on the East Coast and he's been awesome. I just do one straight recording and I'll just say, okay, John, you know, cut that out or hey, I'm oh, just- that's cool. Yeah. And he'll just listen to it and be, and he can even see on the sound waves or the audio waves or whatever. Like he could go straight to it and go, oh, Jamie coughed right there or 
you know, she mm-hmm. took too long of a break there. So yeah, I work with him and he's been like so, so helpful. And it's definitely money well spent because I always tell people as much as I would love to say, I do my own editing and that I know how to do it. At the same time, if I had to edit, I probably would not have a podcast. So. Oh yeah, because the, the times, especially if you've got kids and everything else, the job and everything else going on, it's just, uh, it, it can be chaotic. I, I don't know how people have the time to do everything on their own, but. Oh my God, um, that's crazy. Yeah, I, I agree. It's probably money worth well spent. And what do you have, a Mac or a PC? Yeah, I have a Mac. What about you? I have a PC. And what is Audacity for, for either? I think it's for either, yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll check it out again. Dude, if I can get it, it just to record, like you're talking about, record the whole thing and just send it to somebody and say, here you go. Yep. You know, maybe I'll just do that. Oh, yeah. Because it's super. It, I'm like you. I mean, I really have no tech savvy in me at all. And so that's exactly what I do. I, I just literally, I use a USB mic and I plug it into my Mac. I turn on Audacity. It automatically recognizes my microphone. And I just hit the record button and I'll record sometimes for like an hour and 20 minutes and it turns into like a 45 minute show. And like I said, I don't do anything fancy. I just record. And when I'm done, I hit stop. I click a button and I download it as a WAV file send it to my guy through Dropbox and he does his magic and sends it back to me as an MP3 and it's wonderful. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I, have to, I have to play around with Audacity and see if I can do a little bit with it just to get the basics down. It's easy when you have sales and still all the tech stuff because it's like I connect the Skype we record it, and he does everything else from there. I don't, I don't even know what he does on the end. I just know that I'm talking, and, and then at the end, it's, uh, it's an episode. So it's a little bit of a learning experience. Well, and your guys' um, sound on criminology sounds great. Season one, especially early on, we had, um, we had an issue. Now, he's in Ohio, and I'm in New Jersey, so obviously we're not the same spot. But a lot of people were telling us that my volume was higher than his. It sounded like I was yelling, and he talks very quietly as it is. So there's a big contrast between our volumes. And, you know, we I think we adjusted a little bit last year, but early on it, it was problematic. And we use a program, I can't remember what it's called, but when you have two different people in two different locations, um, it'll it'll even out their volumes to where it's one steady volume, Got you know, it. even if the, the sound volumes aren't the same. So that, that really has helped. We're actually going back through the older episodes and putting that same process across those and um, evening out all the volumes from season one. So it's it's definitely helped the sound. Although the episode we just put out this past Saturday night, I don't know what it was. I recorded in the same spot, the same settings, the same everything. And it sounded like I was in a tin can. Oh, yeah. And I pulled out the cords, restarted the computer, same thing. And we ran it like that. And you know, I was very critical of myself hearing the, the tin can sound of of my voice. Um, uh, but you know, it's just one of those things. And then we recorded last night and it sounded a lot better. So I don't, I don't really know what the issue was, but just one of those things. And it's like the never ending struggle and all these like podcast groups that we're all a part of, you know, I think the number one question I have seen on there is, you know, how do we get good sound quality? Me and my co-host are in two different spots or somebody like me, who's a, you know, single host show, but you know, I do interviews, obviously everybody I interview is mostly like offsite. So I'm always struggling to get good sound quality. And my audio editor, he and I keep saying that we're going to get together because he knows how apparently to get better sound quality for people who are in two different spots. We just haven't gotten on the phone to do it. So Mm -hmm. I know I'm frustrating the hell out of him because he's a sound guy, right? He wants to hear good sound. He cringes if somebody uses a bad microphone or, you know, sometimes I send him my interviews and like, like with you right now, I'm just sitting in front of my Mac and I'm using the internal microphone on my Mac, which is not the best, but you know, it gets me by because I don't know how else 
to do it when I'm recording with somebody else. Oh, I got you. So you can't use your external mic when you're recording with somebody else? I'm actually pretty sure I can. I just don't know how to do it. And I'm sure it's really, oh, yeah, I'm sure it's really simple and I'm like a bozo and probably should have learned how to do it by now. So I just keep on using my internal mic on my Mac and I frustrate the hell out of my, my audio guy. <laughs> And so you can't just like plug, oh, I guess because you've got the audacity, I didn't think about that, but, um, so if you plug in a mic to your Mac while audacity is recording, you can't talk to that. You I can't record to that. Like, I, that's what I was thinking is like, okay, if I plug in my USB mic and then I turn on audacity, so it recognizes my mic and then I make a Skype phone call. I'm pretty sure I could just talk through my mic and probably have headphones on to hear the call or something like that. Mm. I just haven't, you know, it's like the kind of thing where I just haven't done it yet, but I'm probably, I'm pretty sure that can be done very easily. Yeah, because like right now I've got my USB mic and headphones on and I don't know if you can, you know, if you can hear that noise in the background, but I, I literally have the worst recording studio of any podcast ever. <laughs> you know, I'm set up in my living room. I, I've got a height chair in front of me. I'm dodging kids toys on the floor and I'm trying to get away from the bedrooms because I don't want the kids stirring there and, and affecting my recording. But then I'm out here in the kitchen and I've got the ice maker that's like going haywire and we can uh, rack it out there. So if you hear some weird noises, that sounds like a little grumbling tapping on something. That's probably my, uh, my ice maker, but I really want to get, and I have such a small house. I have a three bedroom rancher and two kids. So my office got taken away from me when we had our second yeah. kid. But um, it's it's scrambling to try and find a space that sounds good where you're not getting all kinds of noise in the background. And I think that's part of the battle, too, is not having a dedicated space uh, to record. So, um, it is. And I know so many podcasters who, you know, record in their closets or, you know, do little creative things like that or in their car. I, I've heard, you know, being in your car is actually a really good soundproof, you know, way to record. But you just got to make sure you have... Maybe you need Wi-Fi if you're in your car. I'm not really sure. But, you know, there's just I'm lucky enough to have an extra bedroom in my house, but it's by no means a fancy studio at all. And all the time when I'm recording without fail, you hear my dogs barking in the background or you have my <laughs> my four year old who always pops in and tries to get on the mic when she walks in and sees that I'm recording. She's like, oh, let me say something. It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> That's so fun having a kid. It is. Especially if multiple kids and you've got a bunch of them walking around, but um, you know, (laughs) you got to deal with it. I know, but yeah, well, I, the, uh, the, the woes of being a podcaster, but uh, someday we'll we'll get our own recording studio. I'm sure. Right. (laughs) That's what I'm hoping for. Um, You know, it'd be cool to have one of the ones professional, the microphone hanging down over Uh here shoulder and stuff that I would see people with, but for now I'm just going to have to wing it and, you know, do what I can. Yeah. I just, I want that cool looking podcast studio just so I can be that podcaster that posts like a casual picture (laughs) on social media. Oh, look at me. I'm in my podcast studio. No big deal. Thanks so much for listening, you guys. I had so much fun talking to Morph. He's really become a good friend of mine, and he's been so helpful. He's been promoting the heck out of Murderish and so many other podcasts, and I really, really appreciate that about him. Stick around for a couple more minutes to hear a couple of podcast promos from Criminology and Swindled Podcast. These are two of my favorite podcasts, so I hope you'll take a listen and subscribe. I also want to give a big shout out to the latest Patreon supporters, Amy Duncan and Tara Lugo. You guys have been so supportive and I appreciate it so much. Thank you. As always, guys, thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode.
Have a good one, and I'll see you all very soon. If you liked what you heard today, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a five-star rating and review. This helps the podcast in more ways than you know. And don't be shy. Tell a friend. The word of mouth is powerful. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at MurderishPod and on Facebook at Murderish Podcast. And remember, listeners of this podcast aren't murderers. You're just murder-ish. Thanks for listening and see you soon. This is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morford. We'd like to invite you to check out Season 2 of our true crime podcast, Criminology, out right now. Season 2 is all about the East Area Rapist, Golden State Killer, and we'll be detailing every aspect of these crimes using the actual police reports and files to chronicle this predator's deeds. In our coverage of this case, you'll hear from survivors of these crimes and from family members of those that didn't survive. We'll also talk to witnesses, experts, and investigators to help tell this story. You can find Criminology on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or on your favorite podcast app. For over 40 years, Hooker Chemical Corporation dumped over 80 toxic substances at Love Connect. There is substantial medical opinion that continued use of the Dalcon Shield may pose a serious personal health hazard. Oh, I hate all of you! I hate you! He's accused of orchestrating the largest lotto scam ever. In opening arguments, Prosecutor Jerry Miller portrayed Baker as a greedy, money-hungry showman who practiced fraud disguised as religion. Martin Shkreli has become the most hated man in America. My kid's not here! He's dead! Because of him! He ruined my life! Swindled is a podcast that uses narrative storytelling, archival audio, and immersive soundscapes to explore true cases of white-collar crime and corporate greed. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever else you may get your podcasts. For more information about the show, visit our website at swindledpodcasts.com.